And welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder, and um, I'm thrilled that you're able to join us today. We're going to have a really interesting conversation today about what's new in dementia. But before we get to our guests, um, listeners are always asking me, who are you and what the heck are you about? So um, I'll just give you a little idea. Bottom line, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we're going to be able to remove some of the stigmas attached to this disease and help people live better with and alongside dementia. Um, at our core, we also believe that collaboration is the only way we're going to win this battle against dementia. And we know that that's working thanks to all of you. You see your likes, your clicks, your shares with your Facebook friends, your Twitter tribe, your LinkedIn colleagues, your Pinterest peeps um, have all raised Alzheimer's Speaks profile. And um, it, it's, uh, it's huge to us. Um, we got named the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's, according to Share Care and Dr. Oz. We were also just this last fall acknowledged as an architect of change for humanity from uh, Maria Shriver. And that wouldn't have happened without each of you. And even though those likes, those clicks, those shares take seconds, they're really important because each of us have a sphere that we communicate with verbally, non-verbally. And when we push this information out, it just makes it a little bit easier for those who need it to grab it when they're ready. So again, um, I hope that all of you will like the program and share it with, uh, with all of your spheres and um, just help people acknowledge that this disease exists and that we can live graciously with it. Um, I also want to give a shout out to um, people who are going to be joining us on our cruise in November. We are so excited. Uh, November 11th through the 18th, we are going to be doing a dementia conference and cruise going to the Eastern Caribbean. And we have a fabulous team of people who aren't going to just talk at you, but they're going to engage and we want to hear your stories. We have um, with us Harry Urban, Michael Ellen Bogan, Lori Shear, who is here with us today, and Mary Reed, all living with the disease. And they're going to share their insights their tips, um, what they've learned through their journey, and um, and share uh, with all of us. Uh, Cindy Lazinski, who is um, heading up a dementia-friendly group in Colorado, will be with us, as well as Becky Watson, a music therapist, and then we have Kathy Schof, who is our fabulous uh, cruise uh, director and um, also an RN and an accessibility expert in her field, and so that's going to be really cool. Um, 
to to have all of these people together on our team. And there's going to be plenty of time to relax and have fun and build camaraderie and just have a really hopeful cruise. We are encouraging families to come and join us um, and make this intergenerational. I did it with my own family. We didn't have the conference, um, but we did do um, a cruise with my mom dying of uh, dementia, my dad um, with brain cancer, my brothers and myself in our in our families. And it was one of those moments that I don't think any of us will ever forget. So please join us. You can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. There's a big flyer you can print out. You do have to book your rooms uh, or your cabins through Kathy Schof because this is a, a small group that we're doing on the cruise ship in and of itself. So um, let's go ahead and introduce to you our guest today. Um, first, I'm going to introduce, introduce uh, Lori Shearer, and she is a fabulous woman who is sharing her life and her insights as she lives with dementia. She has a fabulous website called Dementia Days, and you will just learn so much from her. So welcome, Lori. How are you doing today? Thank you, Lori. I'm good, and thank you for asking me to be on your show again and, and to have the opportunity to meet Dr. Ravens. Well, I just think it's so important to have the voice of dementia be heard, and so it's my honor. Um, I, I just I, I love your insights, and I'm so appreciative that you are not only going on the cruise, but you also join us for Dementia Chats, which is our video uh, uh, video interview that we do a couple times of month, a uh, couple times of month getting uh, information from all of you. It's just uh, so insightful. Um, Our guest today is Dr. Peter Ravens, and he is also the author of This 36-Hour Day. And anybody who is in the dementia or Alzheimer's space has heard of the book The 36-Hour Day, and it just went into its sixth edition. He's also the professor of practice at Erickson School of Aging um, Management Services at the University of Maryland in Baltimore County, and he was the founding director of the Geriatric Psychiatry Program for the first holder of the Richmond Family Professionship of Alzheimer's Disease and Related Disorders in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences um, at uh, John Hopkins University of uh, Medicine. And so welcome uh, today, Dr. Ravens. How are you? Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, I'm so excited to have this conversation and learn what's what's new and what's cooking um, in the world of dementia. So can you tell us, is there any new information about research for the cause of dementia and also the drugs preventing or and curing it? That's probably the top thing on everybody's minds out there. Um, well, sure, you know, there's actually a lot going on, but uh, let me highlight a few things that I think are important and hopefully... Uh, will have treatment implications, at least down the road. I think number one is the fact that there's almost universal agreement now that the changes in the brain that occur with Alzheimer's begin 15 to even 20 years before the first symptoms. Um, Now, that might sound discouraging, but what that really means is that if we could identify who's at risk and identify these changes very early, we'd have 10 or 15 years to prevent any subsequent brain damage. So 
Um, what's likely to happen in the next five years or so is that the treatments are now being focused on identifying people who are at risk before the symptoms start. Mm-hmm. And again, the hope would be um, to prevent it from ever emerging into a person's life, even though um, the disease might be beginning. So that's very important. I think another thing um, that has been realized sort of on the other end of the age spectrum is that if you look at people over 80 or 85 who have dementia um, and die and have an autopsy, um, many of them have two or even three causes of dementia. So we tend to think, well, there's Alzheimer's disease and there's Lewy body dementia and vascular dementia. But in very old people, it looks like there may be several diseases together that are much more likely. So that will have a lot of important uh, treatment implications. And I would say one more um, before getting to the treat the um, new drugs. I think one more thing that's really important to emphasize is that it's very clear now that we know how to improve the quality of life of people who have dementia, particularly Alzheimer's disease. So. We don't right now have good treatments that can stop the disease in its tracks or prevent it. But we know that with the right amount of the right types of activity and stimulation and support, people can live much better and happier lives. And I think that's important while we wait for the basic scientists and the intervention scientists to discover treatments. Um, now you asked, so what is it that what's happening as far as uh, drugs or prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, the the biggest focus in the last 15 years has been on a particular protein called the beta amyloid protein. And um, this is a protein that in, in a normal form is present in, the, in the, every brain cell, every neuron of everybody. So it's a normal protein. And um, it turns out, though, that when brain cells die, this protein has to be broken down into pieces for the body to remove the protein from the brain. And some of the pieces are easy to remove from the brain, but at least one piece um, called the 42 because of its length, um, amino acid length piece, isn't removed by the body. It just sticks in the brain. And the theory is, it's kind of a garbage disposal theory that, this protein just sits in the brain and then the brain thinks it's a foreign body, like a splinter in your finger signing, and starts to attack it and try to remove it that way. And it's as much that reaction to the protein as it is the protein itself that causes Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, if you were a scientist or a drug company and you wanted to uh, attack the disease, there are a couple of things you might do, right? One would be develop a drug that removes the bad protein, the bad 42 protein, um, and maybe then the disease would never develop. And so there are a number of drugs now in development and also being tested, and that's their target. They try to, excuse me, remove that unwanted protein. Um, Another approach would be to say, well, the problem isn't only the protein, it's the way the body starts to attack it and think that it's foreign. And maybe if we could stop that, the body from attacking the protein, um, that might prevent the disease from emerging. So there are some drugs and 
some companies are focused more on that part of it. Um, and we'll have to see. It's going to take um, probably another four or five years at a minimum to know whether any of these treatments are, are really working. That's a kind of a long answer. but So there's a lot going on, and I think it's, that part of it is very exciting. Well, that's good. I didn't realize that it was something that that was attacked um, because it wouldn't leave um, and that that was part of the problem as well. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Now, a lot of people want to know, you know, are there any strategies for delaying dementia? Because I, I know a lot of people come up and approach me and say, I'm having signs. I don't know if this is normal aging because everybody's just becoming more aware of it. Um, are there things that people can do or that the doctors can do um, to help us delay this process if it, if it uh, you know, if we feel it's in the horizon? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I think the, um, the answer is yes, um, but it's not the strongest scientific evidence, but which I mean, for example, um, there's very good evidence that remaining physically active, so doing something 30 minutes a day for five days a week, mm-hmm. um, can that, um, so inactivity, if you look at the opposite of it, contributes about 15% of the risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. Okay. Now, how would, you, how would you study that? Well, if you study large groups of people, some of whom are very active and some of whom are less active, and follow them over time, the less active people are at higher risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. And if you sort of flip it around and you compare people who have the disease to people who don't, Again, you find that in the past, the people who have developed it have, as a group, been somewhat um, less physically active. Now, that doesn't prove it. That's kind of indirect evidence. But um, many studies have found it. And, of course, um, exercise is a great preventer of heart attack and stroke. That is proven. So um, one thing people can do is become or remain physically active. And again, it's just, it's 30 minutes a day of, um, you know, it doesn't have to be running, but it can be vigorous walking. It has a heart protective and a brain protective benefit. So that's one. A second big risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is having blood, high blood pressure in middle life. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. If you develop high blood pressure when you're 70, that doesn't seem to increase your risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. But if you have high blood pressure in your 50s, that's a risk factor. So um, making sure that you get your blood pressure checked and your and the other things that are associated with that, high cholesterol, being overweight, controlling the, what people call the vascular risk factors. So those are also risk factors for heart attack and stroke. And it's very intriguing that they also seem to be risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. So if you have blood pressure, you know, get it treated and work with your doctor because it's, it's not always easy to get blood pressure under control. And, you know, for a lot of us, taking pills every day is hard. Um, so you have to be motivated. And I think one of the great motivations, if you have high blood pressure or high cholesterol, is to realize that you might be decreasing um, your risk of Alzheimer's. So those are two things. And together they explain um, more than 20% of the risk of getting Alzheimer's. Then there's diet. And of course, diet is also very hard to study. Um, 
But there have now been a couple studies that have shown that the so-called Mediterranean diet, Mm -hmm. so eating um, less fatty meat and more fruits, vegetables, uh, lean meat, chicken, et cetera, um, um, also seems to be associated with a lower risk of Alzheimer's disease. doesn't mean you have to be a vegetarian. Um, But to cut back to maybe once or twice a week having red meat and having white meat, you know, other days of the week, and then making sure that you have a a range of vegetables and fruits um, also seems to, again, it's indirect evidence, but I think it's fairly strong um, that that also is protective or lowers your risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. So those are three things that everybody can do to lower their risk. Um, The other side of it is, you know, is there a single vitamin or a pill or whatever? And the answer, at least as far as I'm concerned, is no, at least not at this point. No evidence that any specific vitamin or any particular kind of protein um, lowers lowers risk. Okay. Um, Lori, any questions that you have for him at this point? Yes, um, I was in the Merck uh, study uh, that mm-hmm. was just canceled. Um, I was in my third year, and it was canceled um, mm-hmm. because they found that it was inconclusive. What research study would you recommend? I was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and FTD. Mm-hmm. Do you have one that you would Oops. recommend that's going on right now? I don't think there's, um, you know, one study that's better than another. I okay. That particular study, I think, um, was very well designed, and um, I, I think uh, the molecule they were testing was something very reasonable to test. So, um, first, I think it's great that you were in the study because that's the only way we're ever going to dis- learn what, whether things work or not. It's the disappointing um, that it didn't work. But people are now worried that we're, um, again, we need to be starting very early. And maybe one of the reasons that medicines are not working uh, is that they're not being started early enough. So it's conceivable that at some point in the future, um, they might even restart that trial or, you know, a trial of a similar medicine. Um, But I don't think there's any one particular uh, drug. I, I think when I encourage people to go into clinical trials, I tell them first, be practical. Find out, you know, what's um, what's in your area because you're going to have to go back there regularly for evaluations. Right. Look carefully at the side effects. Make sure um, that they're not too scary um, because since it's a, a study, you you want to not be in the riskiest trials. And and the companies work very hard to try to avoid that, but sometimes you know you can't. Um, and I and I, I would say. When you go to um, the clinicaltrials.gov, which is um, the website that the government has for all trials, uh, see who the sponsors are and how many people um, are in the study. If it's very small number of people, those studies need to be done. But that usually means nothing's known about the drug yet, and they're just starting out. Whereas if if it's a larger trial or so-called phase three trial, that means there's enough evidence for the company um, to invest a lot of money in doing the trial, and they are very expensive. So 
um, if, if I were advising somebody to choose, that, that those are the kinds of things that I would encourage them to think about. Okay, great. And also, you, you had mentioned that you're identifying people before their their symptoms. How are you identifying people before their their symptoms actually appear? Uh, that's an important question and a great one because one of the real advances in the last few years has been um, the fact that uh, it's now possible to do uh, brain scans that identify that amyloid protein. So un until um, three or four years ago, we could only do MRI scans that just show you what the brain structure looks like or PET scans that tell you about blood flow. But now they have PET scans, so it's a kind of brain scan, that specifically uh, identifies that amyloid protein um, in the brain. And so we can be much more secure in the diagnosis now than in the past. So that's a, that's a huge advance. So um, what they're doing is screening people who are normal, but either worried about their memory or maybe have someone in their family um, or have a genetic predisposition. Th those people then have one of these amyloid scans and if, if the scan is positive, that means they're much more likely to be at risk for Alzheimer's, and um, those individuals are, are being targeted for these trials. The, the other protein that's involved in Alzheimer's disease is called the tau protein, T-A-U, and it's a different protein. Um, and it's, it's thought now that the amyloid protein is first deposited in the brain, and then somewhat later the tau protein is deposited. But there's some scientists who think that it's the tau protein rather than the amyloid that's the bad actor. And um, probably in the next year or two, there will be tau PET scans um, that can accurately identify who has that protein. And the thought is going forward is that um, at least for some trials, they'll require that you have both the tau and the amyloid protein in your brain. Others will continue to just focus on the amyloid protein. But these can tell us who has the risky protein but doesn't yet have symptoms. Okay. Interesting how, uh, how things are progressing there. Um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk at all about any latest research on young onset dementia because it seems like we're identifying much more of that, or is that just uh, my mm -hmm. perception? But it just, it seems that there's a lot more um, people who are younger that we're seeing getting diagnosed. Yes, I, I think um, it's tricky. I, I think you're, you're right. It does certainly seem like many more younger people are being identified. Um, and I, I think that's partly just because um, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, most people didn't know about Alzheimer's disease, much less dementia. And so people were misdiagnosed um, in the past. Uh, they were, you know, called mentally ill or diagnosed as with some other kind of problem when they had early onset Alzheimer's disease. So it, it, it doesn't really look like the actual rate is increasing, but we're recognizing it much more. Um, People who develop it before age, develop Alzheimer's disease before age 60 are more likely to have a genetically caused Alzheimer's disease. Um, so that's one difference. Um, 
And um, overall, it may, the disease itself may progress slightly more rapidly um, in younger people. But even that, I think there's some question as to whether that's true. So I think the biggest difference is um, there's more of a genetic risk when when you're younger and develop it. And uh, we don't know whether if, if people have an identifiable genetic trigger for the disease, will they need a different tr- treatment than people who don't seem to have those same genetic risk factors. So we haven't figured that out yet. Okay. Interesting. You know, my mom, my own mom had um, dementia symptoms when she was in her mid fifties and, you know, they kept um, saying back then, and she's been gone now for, oh gosh, three years um, and lived 30 years with it. But for the first 10 years, her Mm -hmm. general GP, you know, just kept poo-pooing it to, um, Hormones and my mom would joke, "This ain't my girlfriend's exactly. yeah. hormones." <laughs> you know, and then, and then we retested mm-hmm. her again when my dad ended up with brain cancer, and then they were like, "Oh yeah, you know, she's got the mentality of a three-year-old. Don't let her out of your sight." And um, we did do the brain um, autopsy and things, and and found that she definitely, you know, had the dementia. But um, you know, it was just such a struggle to to get that diagnosis and um, to be able to find her help. Um, you know, mm-hmm. but again, things have changed so much since that time. And even in just in the last five years, it's just been kind of incredible. Um, the amount of, um, research and support that has come forward and is being developed. Um, yet we're so, we're still so far behind the eight ball, but it's, it's way better right. than, yeah. than where we were at. Yeah. But that's a great, your mom, you know, unfortunately is a good example of the fact that we were so ignorant back then that that it wasn't being diagnosed. And of course, then that's terribly frustrating, right? When you don't, when you're either being told uh, nothing's wrong or it's not serious or quote, it's just hormones, uh, you know, that robs people of all the information that we do know about how to help people. So I I think it is a big advance, just wreck the fact that we're better able now to diagnose it. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things, and I think Lori will back me up on this is, you know, I hear story after story after story about people going in and finally getting a diagnosis, but you know, that's all they're, they're getting a diagnosis or getting a, a next appointment and they might get a medication. And if they're lucky, they get a number to the Alzheimer's association, but that's really about it. And, you know, people are screaming for more information out there. Are you seeing any headway mm-hmm. in terms of the medical field with being able to put people in touch um, to resources and, and not just one organization, but, you know, that was that was the one thing that I think really frustrated me was that I knew that there had to be more, but it was so deeply hidden. And that's why I changed careers and do what I do now is to, highlight, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just all the various, you know, services, tools, and products that are out there um, to help people be able to make their own decisions. Do you see any progress being made in that area? Um, Absolutely. And again, you probably should answer that question too. But um, yes, I I think, again, that um, doctors are not that different from the general public. And we know just the, the idea that you can get Alzheimer's disease when you're 50 Ten years ago, most people didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So uh, doctors now recognize that just as the public does. So um, that kind of information is gradually seeping into the medical profession. And it's not just doctors. It's really doctors and nurses 
and social workers, all the people that work in the medical field, um, need to have that kind of a knowledge. Mm-hmm. The other part of your question, though, I, I think um, not quite as positive, although I think progress is being slowly made, and that is how good are we at hooking up people with the resources that are available in their community? Um, and you know, this is something where doctors are often not the best people in a way, and that um, social workers and uh, Geriatric nurses are sometimes more informed about what are the resources that are available in in our community. So uh, I think it is very important for people who are listening, um, and I'd like to hear Lori's experience, um, to find out, you know, first, who who knows about Alzheimer's disease in your community and what resources are available. One resource that I recommend to people um, that's available to everyone is a website from the National Institute on Aging, mm-hmm. um, and a, and they have a program called ADEAR, A-D-E-A-R, mm-hmm. and if you just Google that, you'll get to their website, and it's a very good place for information about how to help people and about what's new from the biological point of view. So I think they've done a great job at informing people. The Alzheimer's Association also has a very good website, and they're a great information source as well. And there are other Alzheimer um, and dementia organizations that likewise you know, have really good information. Um, one of the keys, of course, is it's great to get general information, but how do you find out what you need mm-hmm. like for you or your loved one? Um, and that's where a, a good uh, social worker, care manager, somebody who can really help you figure out what are my problems, what are our challenges, and then what resources are available to address those for our family or, or for me. Um, and that's a skill. And so we need more people to help do that at the individual level. I agree. Lori, your thoughts? Yeah, when I was diagnosed, I was 55 years old, and I went to four doctors before the final one said, I'm just confirming what the other four wouldn't tell you, which is you have early onset Alzheimer's and FTD. And basically, I was told, go home, get your affairs in order, and see an elderly care attorney, and oh, if you want information, check with the Alzheimer's Association. That, to me, was very discouraging, because the Alzheimer's Association does not have a lot to offer, um, although they're changing that. But at that time, they did not have a lot to offer people with dementia, and certainly not with early onset, early onset dementia and people under 65. Department of Aging mm-hmm. didn't want to have anything to do with me because I was under 65. And it took me quite some time and research to get the information I needed, and most importantly, to find other people. And what a shock it was to find that I was not the only one that was 55 years old and had dementia, because that's the way the doctor made it sound. But to me, the most important places that I have found are DementiaMentors.org, where they have people that will mentor you and help you through the beginning as you're trying to get used to this whole idea. Um, and on Facebook, there's a number of virtual memory cafe where we chat together. And uh, there's just quite a few chat groups on the internet 
um, where you can actually speak with other people with dementia and find out their symptoms and most importantly how what ways have they learned to deal with it what strategies have they put in place so they don't get lost so they don't lose things so that they can live um, a beneficial life um, but mm-hmm. then I took a list of them uh, and including there's a number of us that have dementia that blog I took a list of them to my neurologist and she said oh sorry we only recommend the Alzheimer's Association I thought that was very sad because that was that gave me the least amount of information of anything that I found so I think it's very sad that the the neurologist was so closed-minded that she doesn't want to help her patients because there, there's just so so many people out there with early onset that can help caregivers to understand what their loved one is going through or that can help people recently diagnosed um, that really can hold their hand and mentor them. Yeah, I think that's um, really important. Um, And it sounds like, have you actually attended any support groups uh, and met with other people that are in your same situation or is this mostly online? We do them on on video, video chat. There Mm -hmm. is nothing in my area and um, I don't anticipate there will be anything in my area because I live in the country and they just weren't interested in doing anything. So, Uh um, but and people are very scattered, so there might not be any that many people right where you are. But when you look around the country, there are a lot. Yeah, because I don't I don't drive very much. I drive once a week to the grocery store and back. So uh, I would not drive to a chat group and then trust myself mm-hmm. driving home afterwards. So. Um, and there are many people like that. So you, you, since we're so spread out in the country, you're, you're having to handle that, that distance thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, but, the, but you know, that's are great. Mm-hmm. It is really, um, interesting, the power of the internet though, and those connections. And now with the video, because even if people have a meeting in their area, um, you know, that might be once a week, it might be once a month. And that's not enough socialization for what people need, and, and people are accessing the internet, you know, pretty much daily. And um, I, I know initially that was really poo-pooed, and I think that that has to be taken very seriously, in terms of the support and the camaraderie and the honest conversations that are being had. I know even with our dementia chats, which is, um, you know, I I interview what I consider the experts who are people living with the disease and. And we've got a hospital now over in the UK saying, can we use these in our training? Um, and it's like, yeah, they're free. Go for it. I mean, that's why we do these things is to, to get their voice heard because they're not talking necessarily statistics. They're talking everyday living. And not that people don't want that clinical sense, but most families are just, you know, time is short and it's critical and they just need to learn to know how to care and how to cope. And, um, and so I think it's this balance that we have to find in our country between research and, you know, feet on the ground um, in the trenches with people as well. And we, we, you know, we need Congress so badly to fund both um, because, you know, the numbers are just on the rise. 
with that. Um, Dr. Ravens, did you have a comment um, after Lori's comment too as well? Well, I was going to say that, you know, Lori, in many ways you're um, giving a positive message. I think one of the things that I worry about is when people hear someone has dementia or Alzheimer's disease or frontotemporal dementia, somehow that stops them from thinking about that person as a human being any longer. You know, there's, they're a brain disease and not a person. Mm -hmm. And I think you're eloquently speaking about how important contact with other people and particularly other people who are in the same situation. And the fact that you can learn a lot from other people and make life better. Those are all such important messages. Um, So, you know, thank you for sharing those with everybody. Yeah, that's one thing. We've had a, a question even with the cruise that we're doing. They're like, are you going to have respite for the person with dementia? And it's like, no, the cruise is going to be respite for both of you, but in a different sense. It's not that you need a break from one another. It, we want to teach people how to get back to the core of their relationships of being husband and wife or you know, mother and daughter and father and son or grandchild or whatever, um, and person with dementia, and and um, get back to those cores that people have forgotten about mm-hmm. because they've been categorized as a caregiver or a care partner. And, you know, there's this perception that the person with dementia can't give us anything back, and that's such a falsehood. And we really have to change mindsets when it comes to that in terms of, the verbiage that we use and how we engage and just getting people to know it's okay to laugh and have fun and, you know, not be embarrassed when something doesn't go right, because you know what, your life wasn't perfect before this, and it's not going to be with dementia either. So stop trying to drive in the perfect lane and have everything under control, because you didn't before either. You, you, you might have thought you did. Um, but in reality, if you look at your life, you had some ups and downs. And, you know, we just have to learn how to live graciously with this new stage in life that we're dealing with. And and that's what we do throughout life is learn how to live mm-hmm. graciously in the lane that we're that we're driving with that. Um, I want to get back. I, I think I've got so many questions for you here. Um, what what's um, sort of progress is being made regarding the brain imaging methods that are out there? And do you recommend one over another or is that really individual based? Um, well, it's turned out to be more complicated than uh, we had hoped. But <laughs> so I mentioned before, uh, there are now these PET scans that can identify amyloid in the brain. The challenge, it turns out, is that after age 70, um, many people, the majority of people, um, the older you are, have amyloid in their brain. And we don't know that that means everyone's going to get Alzheimer's disease. So the scans, um, for if you're under 70 or under 65, uh, these amyloid scans are very good at telling you whether you do have amyloid and don't, and therefore whether you're at higher risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. We haven't figured out yet whether after 70, the scans are that predictive. Now, they may be, but it's going to take a time uh, to teach us that. The other thing that from the scans that's surprising um, is that uh, we people were hopeful that um, the more amyloid that was identified on the brain scan, the more severe the disease. And the reason that would be important is because if you develop a treatment that could lower 
amyloid on the scan, that might tell you whether you were helping that person even before maybe their symptoms got better. But it turns out that um, the scans don't seem to work that way, that um, the amyloid buildup kind of stops or plateaus at a certain point, even though the disease keeps going. So at least right now, the scans are not, uh, the, the amyloid scans are not a good way of measuring sort of progress of the disease or progress uh, in the sense of stopping the disease. We don't know what will happen when these tau scans become um, widely available. So it may be that somehow the two scans together will be more accurate and more able to measure the severity of the disease. That, that's very important. Okay. Now, when we do what's called an MRI scan or a CAT scan, uh, those kinds of scans, they show the brain itself. Um, so whereas the PET scans that I just t talked about, they show this amyloid protein or the tau protein, and there are also PET scans that show uh, blood flow in the brain. The MRI scan looks at the structure of the brain. So that means if you had a stroke or a brain tumor, um, it's the MRI scan that would be better at identifying it. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's not so much that one's better than the other, but in the sense that they, you know, they serve different purposes. Um, overall, the MRI scan has finer resolution than the CAT scan. Um, so uh, in that sense, it's, it's sort of better for detecting, say, small strokes or um, whereas in an emergency situation, it uh, turns out that someone who might be having a, a stroke, um, you want them to get a CAT scan right away as an emergency because that's more uh, able to detect immediately the changes that indicate a stroke. So it's sort of, you know, in what circumstance are we talking about? But um, again, there's progress. We didn't have these kinds of scans, the, the PET scans five years ago. So that's tremendous progress. Okay. <clears throat> what about behavioral and um, neuropsychiatric symptoms and medications? Anything going on there? Uh, well, yes. Well, I think first it's clear that the antipsychotic medicines, the strongest kinds of medicines that are used to treat um, those behavioral, so-called behavioral or neuropsychiatric symptoms, have a lot of side effects, serious side effects, and even increase the rate of mortality or death. They do help some people, but um, because they have so many side effects, uh, there's now universal agreement that we really should focus on non-medication treatment first and save those drugs only for people that have failed everything else that we've tried, you know, unless there's a dangerous situation. Um, and there's been a real effort by Medicare, CMS, to lower the use of these drugs in nursing homes. It's quite amazing. In the last three years, they've lowered the rate of use by about a third. So that, that's without any evidence that it's, that it's worse for the residents of the facilities. Um, the other thing about medicine is that it, there is um, some evidence that other medications, sort of anti so-called antidepressant drugs, one of which citalopram, uh, I was involved in a study looking at, might be helpful for people who are agitated. Um, but I think the, the focus really is on trying to 
figure out what's triggering people's uh, behavioral challenges um, and trying to address that without medication if we can. So is there something in the environment that's triggering it? Are we expecting too much of the person and therefore making them frustrated? Uh, on the other hand, are they not stimulated enough? Are they just bored? And that's why um, things happen. So um, it, it's very clear, at least from my point of view, that uh, the, the proper level of activity and stimulation, things like pets, music, all those things that we do that I would call environmental treatments, they are as effective as the medicines that we have today, like Aricept, uh, Razodyne, Exelon, and Mementine. Um, and they're overall, and that, that these non-drug treatments are better for the behavioral symptoms. So that's very important for people to keep in mind. We always have to be looking at the environment, not forgetting that if somebody develops a new medical problem, that can trigger a change in their behavior. So whenever something changes, we have to be thinking, is there a medical cause? Is there an environmental cause? Um, and, and try to tease it out for every individual. Do you think like these non um pharma treatments will ever be covered, you know, by insurance. I mean, I, I remember when Alive Inside came out and they're like, you know, for 40 or $90 a one-time fee versus hundreds of dollars for medications, you know, we could get people set up on a, on a program. Um, and I, I still mm -hmm. see that battle out there with why won't they fund this when this is a, a very valuable um service, just kind of like with hospice, hospice, you know, they're, they're covering, you know, music therapists and, you know, um, spiritual and all those different types of support that aren't a pill. They're all about engagement. Um, yet it hasn't, it doesn't seem like it's expanded and yet would reduce most likely some costs on the other hand. Any thoughts on that? Well, I absolutely agree with you. Um, but it's a huge issue. Be, um, Medicare, when it was set up in 1965, was set up to treat so-called acute or new diseases, mm -hmm. new onset diseases. Um, and so it specifically was not set up to treat chronic disease. Now, what that means is, so as long as you need some kind of active treatment, and that turned into drugs often, whatever mm -hmm. the disease, Medicare will cover it. But once it moves into what people think of as a chronic illness care, um, Medicare what isn't designed and wasn't designed to cover that. So my own feeling is that we're probably not going to be able to change this only for people with dementia or Alzheimer's disease, although I think what you said is absolutely true. But I think if we realize that um, more commonly across the board, as we're doing a better job of uh, treating cancer and treating heart disease uh, and fixing people's broken bones and all these things, um, many more people are developing sort of chronic disability that can be helped with those kinds of treatments. So it's almost like we need a whole new healthcare system, and it's partly a mental, we need to change our model of medical care mm -hmm. to realize it's not just being in a hospital, it's not just getting a pill, it's treating the whole person, which might mean music therapy or support groups 
um, behave, non-drug behavior management. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we worry about money, so it would be expensive. But I, I think it's the future. Mm-hmm. And I think as a, we, we should be using Alzheimer's disease to lead the way to improve that kind of coverage uh, for people. Yep. I I agree as well. Um, how are you doing on time? Because I know we're going over what we were originally going to go over, and I just want to make sure both of you have time. So, Dr. Rabins, can you stay with us another 10 minutes or so? Or? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. And, and, Lori, how about you? Yep, I'm good. Okay, wonderful. Because I'm just, I think this is just a fascinating conversation. Um, wondering too if there's any updates or um, strategies or advice for continuing care at home programs, and um, and people choosing, you know, to either um, move a person to a residential setting or or keep them home. Have you heard much chatter on that? Well, I, certainly, if you took a survey, you would find that 98% of people would <laughs> rather be at home, yep. right, than move to some kind of, of facility. So that's almost a universal value. Um, and then your question is, is there a better way to do that? And uh, I think the answer is yes. And I think uh, some of it comes from us as individuals and some comes, again, from sort of the, the healthcare system as a whole. Um, a good example, um, this may seem off the topic, but a good example would be physical therapy for people who have Parkinson's disease. The, the way um, physical therapy is paid for is that as long as someone needs it, that as long as they're getting better, um, Medicare will cover physical therapy. But the instant somebody plateaus, the coverage for physical therapy stops. It turns out, particularly if you have Parkinson's disease, if you're able to continue the physical therapy and the exercise, you're able to function much better. You, you, you lose the benefit when you stop the physical therapy, or you know, not immediately, but it, it gradually goes away. Mm-hmm. So what, again, I, thinking sort of in a big way, what um, we need to be thinking is what helps maintain people at their maximum? And... Um, we have sort of pieces of a system already. So I think for some people, it's going to daycare a few days a week that, you know, their family isn't able to keep them stimulated and active and busy, but going for a few hours, a couple of times a week to a day program keeps them in better shape, keeps them mentally stimulated and allows them to stay at home. I think some people need someone to come in the house and help them bathe or get dressed, but they don't need other help. So, uh, again, figuring out how can we help um, organize those kinds of services in the home um, and and who can be an expert in helping each family and each person figure out, here's what I need at this point. And it does take an expert, I think. So we'll need a, a kind of a core of people who, who have that kind of information and can help individuals figure it out. Okay. The other side of it, I think, is um, for family caregivers is so many people say to me, and I think others, no one can do as good a job as I can with my mom or with my husband or whatever. And, you know, that's usually true. Um, but the other side of it is if, you, if that's all you do 24 hours a day, it's not only bad for your own health, but you're going to burn out or not be able to keep caring for your loved one. 
So I think part of it for caregivers is thinking, who can help out now? Who can come in two or three times a week and stay with the ill person so that you can get out? Like your, you know, what you said about um, the cruise, mm-hmm. helping people continue, helping caregivers continue to have a life, a full life, actually enables them to be a caregiver much longer and helps people stay at home longer. So I, I think it's helping people reach out a little bit for the help they need. Um, and figuring out as a society, how can we make these services more available and not bankrupt Medicare or whatever health system mm-hmm. uh, is going to pay for them? And I, I think we can do that because, as you said, um, if you look at the cost of Alzheimer's disease and dementia, uh, nursing homes, long-term care is the biggest chunk of money. Mm-hmm. So if we were able to do that in a good way, um, to to lessen the need for those services, I think we could make a really efficient use of those funds and maybe lower health care costs. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I think, uh, you know, we have to get back to living as a community and supporting one another and um, and not judging, you know, being more open-minded and so much of, you know, the changes that we make um, to help somebody with dementia and their families helps everybody. You know, so it's not a it's not another barrier for somebody else. It just makes things more accessible, more comfortable, um, more accepting. And I think once we can get over that hurdle, you know, in terms of shifting people's mindsets, it's just it's huge. Um, and the volunteer mm-hmm. power is incredible. And um, people, you know, if we don't hide it so much, more people will see it, and then maybe they'll be willing to reach into their pockets to help with funding as well, um, understanding that there is hope, um, you know, for, for this disease. Um, what about um, latest developments on devices to make life simpler and safer for people with dementia? Any updates that you have on technology? Well, um, there may be things I don't know about, but um, I think that's been a disappointing area. There have been a lot of people have been thinking about this. And a lot of the big companies, uh, Intel and Microsoft and Google, have tried to figure out how can we harvest technology and what we're learning to to help um, people with dementia, help their caregivers um, live better lives, not to not need to leave home, et cetera. I think myself that one of the reasons it's failed so far, and I'd be happy to be enlightened if it hasn't, is that um, what what people in the field have tended to do is take what they've already developed and try to apply that to the needs of dementia. Mm-hmm. And I, and people with dementia are different than other people. So, um, you know, it may well be that um, a device like Alexa or a Siri-like um, program where a person could say something and, and, and get back a verbal response or could say, I need help with this, and, and, and the device could arrange it. Maybe that will work. But from my point of view, that doesn't make a lot of sense for most people with dementia because by the time people with dementia need that help, they're not really able to express it in a way that directly to the device. So I, um, I, I'm still optimistic about technology, but I haven't really seen um, that there's been a huge benefit except for what 
um, both of you said earlier about social media. Um, I do think that being able to connect with loved ones, um, keep, uh, keep in contact with other human beings, other people, talk with people who have the similar challenges and struggles and successes, I think that's the one place where technology really has made lives better. But I think on the care side, I haven't seen that yet. Mm-hmm. Lori, what about, I, we've had this discussion many times on dementia chats and other platforms, and I know a lot of the groups are talking about this. Uh, and when I say groups, I'm talking about people living with dementia, which I personally think are the one people that aren't being consulted enough about when people are trying to design something for them. And, um, I, you know, I've just seen that over and over and over again, that everybody kind of gets in their, their little silo and, you know, I'm the tech person, so I'm going to design it. But until you really talk with a bunch of people with dementia, you don't really know what's going to work and what's not going to work in their world and what they need and, and what they need a lot of times. And correct me if I'm wrong, Lori, is um, quit with the changes, you know, stop improving it because it works. And as their disease progresses, they need some things to stay stagnant so that they can still utilize them because they, they knock them out of the loop by um, having been forced to use a product um, in an upgraded mode that they have to learn all over. Lori, is that is that an accurate statement? I, I think there's a couple things. Number one, yes, it's very difficult um, every time there's an upgrade and we have to learn how to re- reuse a piece of equipment. That, that it's, it's challenging. But there's also what we find frequently is that uh, – Doctors don't realize that we now are in the age of technology. People in their 80s and 90s know how to use technology and are very good at it. It comes often more natural to them than writing, and yet it seems as though people don't want to advance technology because, well, people with dementia don't know how to, how to use it, and that's far from, far from true. Mm-hmm. Um, we need more technology. For example, Alexa is good, but we need we need a product that is going to say, um, "Laurie, take your pills." Laurie, did you take your pills? Did you take your pills? And keep you know wait for me to give a response saying, "Yes, I took the pills." Um, or uh, a product that is is going to help us uh, with a grocery list so we don't buy 38 pounds of butter. Um, we, need, we need products like that. And there's, there's been many, many of us that have gotten together and put together what we would like to see, in particular in a calendar. It, it's very difficult for us to maintain a calendar. For example, I use the iPad, but the iPad does not give me the option of putting that I have Alzheimer's speaks the second and fourth Tuesday of every month. I have to put it in for the second, and then I have to put it in for the fourth. So I have to go in and put two entries, um, whereas it, if it would just many, many of our chats are um, the first and third Thursday or whatever, um, but none of the applications give us that as an option, which makes it very confusing for us, um, but definitely something that would would speak to us 
um, and allow us to speak back uh, would be it would be awesome to see more advanced technology. I kind of look at it from the standpoint of I, I sold um, handicap vans and I had just some wonderful customers uh, that had lost their limbs or had um, diseases that were they were going to die. And some of them had just the most wonderful attitudes and some didn't. But for the most part, they fought to come up with ways to adapt. And I think with, with um, dementia, we have to do the same thing. We have to fight to find ways to get around obstacles. We have to fight to figure out, okay, I like that you said drugs aren't the the answer, Dr. Rabins, because I agree with you. I I think the drugs should not be given. Um, But uh, we need to find out what is causing the agitation, what is causing the confusion. And sometimes it can be something very, very simple. But we need more adaptation. Agree. Um, in um, wrapping up here, I've just got one other question I, I really wanted to ask you, and that's what's new on the financial side of things regarding, you know, begging and uh, palliative care and durable to- powers of attorney and guardianships and, you know, that whole sector. Um, have you seen things changing from, from that side for people to be able to protect their finances or, you know, are they digging deeper into personal pockets on this? That's always such a struggle for families. Well, I think, unfortunately, by and large, people are digging into their pockets more and more. Um, And uh, if anything, long-term care insurance is is kind of disappearing. Some of the companies that have offered it have stopped because they found that they can't really predict um, very well what kinds of needs people are going to have in, in the future. Um, so th- this is a really important area, and certainly um, whether you're poor or rich or just in the middle, um, getting some advice from a knowledgeable person about finances and protecting your money and helping your family, I think that's very important uh, for everybody, but particularly once uh, a diagnosis is made of, of any kind of dementia, to think through what's what's the best way to protect your assets, to have assets available for care. Um, and again, it often comes down to sort of individuals. And so finding somebody who's uh, knowledgeable. I have not really heard, more broadly speaking, of new legislation that's going to help in this area, but I, I think it's really needed. Um, and so I don't have any great ideas, but... Um, this is one of the great challenges that families and people with dementia face is, are they going to run out of money? Are they going to bankrupt their whole family? Um, will there be enough left to help people stay at home? Um, because the, the costs tend to be more uh, toward the end of the disease. I will say the one positive thing is that in some ways um, ho- the hospice benefit has been broadened slightly so that um, while in general, um, it means that somebody's likely to die within six months. And once people become more and more disabled, um, um, many plans, in, including um, Medicare hospice benefit, um, do make the benefits of hospice available, even if people 
uh, are not that close to death. And it, that gets back to a point that both of you really made, which is people need good care. And what we call palliative care or hospice care really is just good medical care. And it's helping people deal with the symptoms that they're facing, even when they can't be cured. And if we can figure out a way to um, help pay for those services in a way that, that may, is easier and uh, has less impact both individually and on uh, sort of nationally, I think we'll figure out better ways to help people economically. But it's a huge issue that I don't think a lot of progress is being made on. Yeah, so many issues that we have. Well, I, I thank you both for staying late with us because um, this is just uh, jam-packed full of, of great content and updates. So I, I thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ravens, for being with us. And Lori, um, you're always a pleasure and, and add so much to the conversation. Um, Dr. Ravens, what is the best way for people to um, get your book, um, The 36-Hour Day? Is that just to go to... Um, Amazon, or is it best to go um, through the John Hopkins Press um, to be able to get? Uh, that? Well, it's a, it, it's available on Amazon and, and any of the other uh, you know book websites. Mm-hmm. So um, people don't need to go to the press. Bookstores do carry it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I I hope people will appreciate the fact that that the books, um, although it has some difficult discussions in it. it targeted at kind of what the way this discussion was, which is what can we do to make things better for everybody? And there Mm -hmm. is a lot. That's what the book is really focused on. Yep. Yep. Well, great. And if people go to um, the blog on Alzheimer's Speaks too, um, and just put in the 36-hour day, there'll be um, an article that pops up where you can get 20% discount on the book as well. So um, go ahead and check that right. out. And again, thank you so much for donating books for for our uh, dementia um, conference and cruise in November. I really, really appreciate it very much. And Lori, um, can you give people the name of your um, website again? Sure. It's Dementia Days. That's D-A-Z-E dot com. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you for being with us. Um, Just in wrapping up, I just uh, want to let you know here at Alive and Social, uh, we have a lot of different shows here. You might want to check out What's for Dinner Tonight with Rachel Perrin, who is the Culinary Director for Kowalski's Markets. Uh, You can always go to uh, www.kowalskis.com and get a full um, menu idea for seasonal uh, seasonal meals and um, you know their podcasts are usually only 10 to 15 minutes so it's just filled with great information again we'd love to see you join us on the cruise you can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com you can uh, from there um, you'll be able to print out a program of what we've got going we're actually adding a few more things to it but we want to make sure that people have plenty of time to have fun as well and then noting here um, all of our shows are archived and we've got over six years of shows so there's plenty of great information that you can find our last dementia chats actually we did on the the conference in the cruise and you'll be able to hear from Um, a couple of people who are actually going on the cruise along with myself as to why we're doing this and what our goals are. 
Uh, I'm also doing a screening of His Neighbor Phil May 20th at St. Therese in Woodbury, which is a free screening with a talk back. And on May 28th, I will be in Ellsworth, Wisconsin as well. Uh, last, I just want to give a shout out to the caregiver um, or the call alert center. Um, and again, you can go to alzheimerspeaks.com and um, put in a promo code, all speaks promo 10, and get a 10% discount um, on their um, wandering package. Basically, it's a um, it's an internet um, flyer that you develop, and it's there in case of need, and it's very inexpensive for a year because we never know when someone's going to wander or if they're going to, you know, happen uh, to have that as um, as one of their symptoms of the disease. And you don't have to worry about digging out pictures and, you know, you're just all set to go. So again, thank you so much. Keep in mind um, the three tips from your memory chip. Focus on are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? We'll talk to you soon. Bye now. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Way Showers who will help your journey a lot easier.